Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Two Half Squads, the only podcast on the web or anywhere else that's dedicated 100% to the greatest game in the world, and that would be Advanced Squad Leader. I'm your host, Jeff. Dave is not here tonight. Uh, He's finishing up his final year as a teacher, as an eighth grade teacher, and uh, his final year, not just the year, but his final year as a teacher. So he has quite a bit of stuff going on, and he will definitely be with us next episode. Tonight, though, I've asked our very good friend and advanced squad leader expert, if I can be so bold as to give him that title, Rich Spilkey has agreed to join me. And I've actually, I went to Rich Spilkey's house to do the show there. And I must apologize for the sound quality on some of this podcast because I got all set up and I actually, we, Rich's son, Jared, joined us. And so we talked with him first and then Rich and I talked about squad leader stuff and uh, he did not have the soundboard correctly connected to the computer. So part of the, all of Jared's interview sounds very echoey, not very echoey, but noticeably poor sound quality. And the first part of my discussion with Rich, also not very good quality, but about 15 minutes into it, I believe, maybe 20 minutes, uh, I discovered my mistake and plugged in the soundboard. I never did tell Rich that that was the issue I was having. So he's probably listening to this now and hearing it for the first time. So I do apologize, Rich, for the sound quality on that. And Jared, for your entire interview, the sound quality is not great. Still good. Uh, You know, you can hear it. It's understandable, not that bad, not the worst thing in the world, but I'm feeling bad about it, so I do apologize, listeners and Rich and Jared. Nevertheless, uh, the discussion is top-notch and very much worth listening to, so put on your propeller hats and get ready for this wonderful excursion. Rich starts off by talking about some new tables. If you're not familiar with Rich's tables of uh, ASL you know, player aids, tips and tricks, we highly recommend that you download them. You can download them from our website. Uh, they're on the show notes for this particular episode, and it's also on our quick access page. We keep an updated, updated link there at all times to the latest of Rich's tables. He's added four new tables, which he goes into at some length. Later on, he has a little discussion about a new project that he's working on, which relates to OBA and the statistics that apply therein, and finally wraps it up with some talk about an excellent article that he wrote and submitted to and was printed in the AESL Texas, uh, Texas ASL Bonsai magazine regarding his recent replay, that is, he's played it a couple of times before, of the last bid. He goes into some depth about the article and uh, some of the Things that he learned from playing the last bid. You're going to want to listen to this if you've ever played it, want to play it, have never played it, would like to play it, have played it before. Let's see, have I covered all the contingencies? I think so. Anyway, let me stop talking and instead bring you Rich Spilkey. So here we are. Hi, Rich. Hello, Jeff. So I understand that you've got some new rules tables that you're working on. And uh, you're willing to share that with us? Yes, Jeff. Well, you are the only one now other than myself that has a copy, and I understand you're going to post it alongside this episode. I will. Uh, a lot of folks, and you, you've always made my rules tables available you know, to the listeners. I think you've had them posted for a long time. Yes. 
And you know, over over the years, I've been working on these for years and years. I think more than 20 years. And I've uh, you know added lots of new ones. I've just added two more new ones that we're going to talk about here in a second. But I've also made little changes and little tweaks to the existing ones over time as well. So if you download the latest and greatest file that I just gave you, Jeff, that you're going to make available to the listeners, you will get all that. You get the new ones, you get the edited, uh, you know, old ones. Great. Uh, you know that are because you know, as I play and as I use them, you know, I learn new things or I play different players who you know point out their certain things, and I you know sometimes I find errors or sometimes I don't necessarily find errors. Sometimes I find like oh I didn't address that in the rules tables. I skipped that or I didn't realize that was a possible iteration of, of circumstances. Yeah. You know, and I, I might have just you know just never envisioned it. So then I'll redo the rules table to make sure I capture that you know situation. So I, I exercise these rules tables. I use them myself in my own plane, and I test them, and I stretch them, and I, you know, make sure that they make sense. I make sure that they're applicable. I make sure that they're answering the questions that are being asked. And uh, you know, sometimes they fail, and I need to fix them. And you don't do this in a vacuum. You you have people that you send these to for. Oh yeah, I always send them out for edits and yeah. advice, and I get I get all kinds of thoughts from different people. And Who do you send these to? Uh, just my main opponents that I play, okay. or, or, or there are some people that are like farther away that I send to that I, I have a relationship with that yeah. you know I know take the rules seriously like I do, and and I send it to them for advice as well. But you know mostly I test them myself, and, and mostly frankly I make them for myself. But of course with all that work that I put into them, I hope that others you know want to use them or at least like to look at them as a reference. I I can't imagine somebody would not want to. Because they're inter- they're interesting to read, just like they are. And I try to capture, and again, this is maybe similar to the kind of work I do in my profession. You know, there's very complicated sets of situations. You know, this happens with this, or this happens with that. And I try to capture that type of uh, perspective in squad leader, because you know, like even the tables that we're going to talk about today are like, you know, this, that, and the other happening at the same time, then what do you do? Right. You know, and so I try to capture it. And when you, when you do it that way, you find out, like, you really got to learn the rules because you're, you're looking at every single permutation and combination of things that could possibly happen. And it really, you know, stretches you to, you know, figure that out. Yeah. And maybe some people like to do that, but I find that really frustrating. So the rules tables, these tables really help me a lot. Well, thank you. Yeah, on, on many occasions when I listen to you and Dave talk about <laughs> the different sections of the rules, I must admit I'm often um, uh, yelling at you guys that you, and you cannot hear me because I'm like, Jeff and Dave, you know, there's a rules table on that. Yeah. Talk about that or at least mention that, you know, you know that, that's already explained in rules table number uh, yeah. one, two, three or whatever the number is. That would require, even that would require too much effort for know, us. But yeah. you, uh you always give me a chance to, uh, you know, talk about them, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, we should run every episode by you, and so for, for corrections, and you can put white out. <laughs> you'd be whiting out the whole thing. Well, and, I don't know yeah. if you know, need to go that far. Yeah. So, so these tables, let's talk about the ones I got here. So I got 29 A and B, and I got 30 A and B. So I don't know if you want to call that four rules tables or, or uh, two. Yes, we're going to call it four. Okay, we'll call it four, but they're, they're really addressing two concepts. That's why I, you know, numbered them yeah. I did, because 29 A and B are obviously related to each other. So 29A and B were inspired by a pretty intense argument that I observed. I was not, I was not in the argument, oh, but I, okay. was, I was adjacent to it. 
it was at a tournament. It was a Chicago ASL tournament between two good players. I don't need to name them, but they were both respected and, uh, you know, experienced squad leader players. And they were having an argument about rate of fire and turning a gun and turning a gun in a particular situation and, you know, can it retain rate after it turns or before it turns or, you know, I don't remember exactly what the argument was about, but it was something along those those lines about the effects of turning your gun with or without rate of fire and, and what have you. And so if you look at tables uh, 29A and 29B, which, you know, folks can download now if, if you're making it available there, you'll see that I tried to capture, again, all the different situations. You know, first of all, you've got vehicular guns and non-vehicular guns, which are different. Right. You've got turreted guns, and you've got non-turreted guns in both of those categories. Yeah. You've got, I, I, I guess I captured three kinds of terrain types that, that affect the rules with respect to turning guns and keeping rate of fire and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. You've got what I call common terrain types, and I define that as, you know, like open ground or orchard or basically any of the simple terrain types that don't have any effect on, on, the, the, turn. on the guns turning or firing. Yeah. Okay. So I just call that common. And I define, you know, what I mean by common, but pretty straightforward. So think of common as open ground or grain or orchard or, you know, something simple that doesn't have any effect on turning the gun. Or you know, when, you, when you turn the gun, it has no effect on its ability to retain rate of fire. Yeah, okay. And then you got woods building rubble, which, are, which do have a common effect on uh, when a gun turns. And then you've got a third category, which I call bamboo and behind bocage, both of those two have a additional restriction on whether or not rate of fire can be retained after you turn the gun or whether you can shoot after you turn it. So 29A is all about the prep fire phase. So right. the entire table 29A is those, let's see, 2 times 2 times 3. What is that? 2 times twelve. 2 times 3. You know, those 12 situations from a prep fire phase perspective. And so if you look at this table, you'll see that the columns are labeled you know, you fire within the initial covered arc, and then you either retain rate of fire or you don't. And then, you know, what you can do after that. So what do the numbers mean? So let's let's go right across for a non-vehicular turreted gun and common terrain, and right. you're firing within the initial covered arc. Right. So, for example, that's the, that's the simplest example, so mm -hmm. that's a good place to start. So, yes, you have a turreted non-vehicular gun. Yeah and it fires within its initial covered arc, and it retains rate of fire. That's what that first section is. That's the simplest yeah. case. And that has footnotes one and two, you know, identifying what, what happens next. So footnote one says the gun can continue to fire, which makes sense within its current covered arc because yep. it retained rate of fire. That's pretty simple, straightforward. And then number two, the unpinned gun crew may change the gun's covered arc to fire at another target, but it does have to apply to hit case A to hit modifier for, for turning. And then there's something special uh, regarding the vehicular crew that we don't need to dig into now, but it talks about that. And so it basically says what you can do next. If you did that, then what can you do next or what can't you do next? Yeah. So like if you didn't retain rate of fire in that same circumstance, then you look at lines three and four, which I'm not going to read to you, they can see it themselves. but 
you know, that, that says what you can or cannot do, or maybe, you know, you can t- intensify or, you know, if you can turn your covered arc or not. Okay. So it goes through every single combination permutation wow. of when you can intensify or when you can't, you know, when you, if you turn, can you turn again? If you retain rate, if you don't retain rate, you know, what if you don't even have a rate of fire, then, then what can you do? You know, so it covers all those different combinations. And then table 30, or pardon me, 29B, <coughs> the back side is the exact same thing, the exact same set of 12 circumstances, but it's from a defensive first fire, final fire perspective. Okay. And that's different. It is different because there's different things that you can't do in the defensive first and final fire phase that you can do in the prep fire phase and vice versa. So the rules are very clear about which things are the same and which things are different, and those are articulated in these tables. Now, these were really hard. These tables were hard. I, I can't. Um, I, you know, a lot of my tables are, um, I don't know, they, they vary from easy to hard, I guess. And some of them are really simple. I'm just gathering simple information in a simple format. These were hard. These took me months of research and pulling my hair out and talking to people and and pressing uh, pressing people to really help me dig into the rules on certain circumstances. These were hard. Um, I cannot say that they are 100% perfect. That would be pretty arrogant of me to say, but I'll tell you what, I tried really hard to make them right. I did not just, you know, slap stuff in there haphazardly and say that's close enough. I did not do that. Yeah. I worked really hard to make it right and push the issue. Uh, but if someone finds an error and someone finds a discrepancy, I'd sure like to hear about it to fix it. But I'm, I believe they are correct as they stand. But you know, I, I can't stand here and say that they, you know, I, that I've tested every single thing here. And but I did try to grab every single situation that could possibly occur. And the really hard part about some of my rules tables, not just these, are when you have to use different sections of the rule book. Right. Going back and forth between Chapter C, Chapter D, Chapter G, Chapter A, etc. You know, some of it is like, wow, you know, it just isn't, it's not all in one spot. So anyway, that was inspired by an argument that I observed between two good players about when you could or could not retain rate of fire in a with a gun turning or something like that. And hopefully people will... Uh, Do you remember how that uh, argument turned out? I don't pick remember. On something? I, don't, oh, okay. I don't remember. I remember they asked me what I thought about it, and I remember thinking that's a good question, yeah. and, and I did not have a at-the-ready answer, but it inspired me to make this rules table. It kind of makes me think for a, for a lot of these, well, not the maybe not the very simple ones, but there are a lot of instances here where the rules are going to be so deep, is anybody going to even pursue the rules far enough to get the answers that you took weeks to dig out, you know, it's just like, you know, who knows. And, you know, and what's also a little bit frustrating is as much time and effort as I put into these rules tables, you know, I'll be playing a, a, a game at a tournament with a, with an opponent in whatever city I'm in, I, I do travel to some. And of course I always go to the Chicago tournament, but I go to some other tournaments where I travel and I'll be playing with a, with a good player on a given scenario and, you know, something will happen and I'll know that my rules table covers that. And I'll flip out my rules table, and I'll find that situation, and I will say to my opponent, well, you know, according to my rules table here, I think that, you know, this is the way this should play out. And, of course, I'm not going to be persuaded yeah, by that. really. It's my rules table. Yeah. They, they, they probably never even seen it before, <laughs> even though I've made these publicly available forever. You know, I don't know how many people have downloaded it. It's probably less than half of the players for sure. So, you know, they're just not going to, they don't count that as real. Even though I did use the rules to create these, 
they kind of forced me to go back and retrace my steps to prove to them that that's wow. really the way the rule is. They, they, they don't just believe me because the rules table said so, especially since I'm the one that wrote the rules table. That's kind of ridiculous. But I don't. Obviously, I didn't write them to favor me. <laughs> right. No, of course not. I have no yeah. idea what's going to happen. Yeah. But I, I wrote them to try to be accurate. But but anyway, I could see why another player would be hesitant to accept something as official that's not, not official. I'm just kind of in awe of, of uh, the format you come up with for the tables. Well, like the, I'm how, you, how you come up, how you uh, kind of look at the topic overall and then see some commonalities that start to help you formulate your columns and your rows. Exactly. Well, you yeah, see the yes, patterns yes. coming out of yes. them well, at I, some point. It, what you see is the finished product yeah. didn't, didn't start that way. Really? I start off really by with, with a pen or pencil and paper. And I start off just by drawing columns and rows and seeing what looks right or just making sure I capture all the combinations. So like in this case, we talked about the terrain types, the vehicular, the non-turreted, the turreted, if you have rate of fire, if you don't have rate of fire. You know, I had all those things in my head, but I didn't know how to paint them on the, you know, in, in the form of a table. Yeah. I knew that those were all the variables. Yeah. But I didn't know how to place them. And, and what you're seeing here is not the first iteration. That's why I said this took a long time. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. And just to make it lay out and make sense took a long time. Even the phrase common, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I had to think about what do I call that? What do I call that group of terrain? Right. And then I then I realized that woods, building, and rubble are exactly the same with respect to this particular rule set. And then I realized that bamboo and bocage are exactly the same. Obviously, they're not exactly the same in terms of the rules overall, but as far as this particular rule, they're the same. You know, of, of turning your gun right. in that terrain type, they're the same. So yeah, that, that's a good observation. It, it doesn't. What you're seeing here is not necessarily the way it started. Yeah. But I, I do again. I start with a blank white piece of paper. I draw it out. I try to make sure it captures. Sometimes it fits better on a vertical piece of paper. Sometimes horizontal landscape. But they all fit on one piece of paper. I don't know how you do it, but every single table fits on one well, sheet I, of I, I, I piece make of paper. That. Well, that's paper. why I also have 29A and 29B. You don't, <laughs> you, you don't even have to resort, resort to the uh, European size paper. No, I don't. Or legal yeah. size. Yeah, or legal size. Believe right. me, I've been tempted to do both of yeah, those things. I've been tempted to use legal size or other sizes, believe me, because it's hard to make it squeeze on. But that's when I sometimes have to break it out into the A's and the B's is because it's too much. And I can only guess that even though um, 29A and 29B are similar, one is in prep fire and the other one is in defensive fire, you couldn't really take shortcuts. You had to go through everything sure, I would just have liked, yes, as... Yes, I would have liked to have put it all on one, but yeah. there's enough differences yeah. that I found that you really couldn't. Yeah, it's amazing. The non-turreted, non-vehicular is in gray. Those rows are in gray. Is that for a reason or are you just... Yes, well, that's a great question. Why did I do that? Yeah. Why did I make that gray? Yes, there is a reason that I made it gray. Search and, your gray matter for that. And I apologize. I don't remember why I made it gray, Jeff. Ah, okay. Me. Yes, there's a reason. That's not a mistake. Why don't we pause the podcast and let me research that and answer your question. Okay, let's do that. Okay, Jeff. Well, thank you for the pause break to uh, regain my composure. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot there. Understand my own uh, rules tables. It's been a while since I've made these, but that's my excuse. But in refreshing my memory here in the last minute or so, I realized that, that that gray area, even though I don't really call it out in the chart, and maybe I should, is explain what I meant by the gray area. I think it was a reminder to myself 
that that's a particularly complicated area because there are non-vehicular, non-turreted guns such as mortars, five-eighths inch, right. you know, large mortars that are considered non-vehicular, non-turreted, and the rules for those with turning your turret and keeping rate of fire and what have you are a little bit different sometimes than the non-mortar, non-vehicular, non-turreted <laughs> okay. guns. And so instead of adding another section, yet another permutation combination, uh, I made them gray more as a reminder to myself, I had to think about it in two different ways. Mm. I had to think about it in terms of a mortar fitting that category, but also a non-mortar that's non-vehicular, non-turreted again, fitting that category. So perhaps I should get rid of the gray now that uh, the charts are done, especially if I'm not going to explain what the gray means. Well, yes. Otherwise, we could have a contest. I was suggesting we have a contest, and if anybody could figure out what the gray means... They win a prize. Yes, well, too late now because I, yeah. I, I said what it means. But you did. You can disregard the gray. I, I think it was more of a reminder to myself that that was a particularly complicated section that I needed to pay attention to as I went about it. But you don't think there's any uh, additional work that needs to be done as a result of that? No, I don't think so. I, mean, yeah. I think okay. I should just get rid of the gray because if you read yeah. the rules, if you read the or the explanations, you know the ones, the twos, the threes, the fours. Right. I talk about what you do if it's a mortar and what you do if it's not a mortar in those sections. Right. So a mortar can do this, you know, but a non-mortar, you know, can't do that, for example. Right. Okay. So, so I talk about it. Okay. Good question. You got me. Okay. Good. Well, I'm so, glad you don't have to go back and like make it a make it a fold out. Right. Right. Or use legal. Nobody wants a table with a fold out. No, you know, it's got to be a half by eleven. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next table, if you'll let me move on, yes, was indeed. inspired by you and Dave. Well, thank you. And I think I've talked about this on, on another podcast where I talked about I was going to do this, but now I've actually done it. You guys were, you know, you've been going through the rule book and explaining different rule sets and sections you know, over time. And one of your uh, episodes, I don't remember which one, you talked about the clearance rules. And you talked about, you know, clearing mines, clearing wire, uh, clearing a roadblock. I remember you going through those rules and what you do. And I remember you guys, you know, again, this is when I was probably yelling at you into the podcast from far away, you know, getting confused, as I recall, on that show about, well, why does it talk about the defensive fire phase? Because you do this in the movement phase. You don't do it in the defensive oh, fire right. phase. Yeah. And I remember getting frustrated because at that time I knew the rules well enough to know that some of these things you can do in your opponent's turn, and some of these things you can only do on your turn. So that's why the rules sometimes say what you do in the defensive fire phase when you're allowed to do something clearance-wise in the defensive fire phase. So if you look at table 30A, which I encourage your listeners to take a peek at, you know, here I'm talking about all the different, you know, major clearance objectives like fall and rubble and roadblocks and wire and mines and flames and so on. And what you do, if it, you can, you can always clear these things in your player turn, and so I have the player friendly player turn procedure described for each of these things. You know, what you, in the movement phase, you spend all your movement factors, or you declare TI status, or whatever you do, is explained. And then I have a column that says, can you do something in the enemy player turn, your opponent's player turn? Yes or no? <clears throat> and you can see it's about, you know, a couple of them are no, and half of them are more than half of them. Yes. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing that I learned in making this table is which things are considered hazardous movement and which things aren't. Because that's a big deal. If you got a, you know, if you're doing this thing, sure. you got a minus two against you. Yeah. 
for hazardous movement, obviously that's you know very likely that you're going to get shot at if you're in line of sight of an enemy unit. And if you break or pin, then you're not allowed to you know do that clearance you know any longer if you're affected by that. So whether but what's interesting is clearing a roadblock you know is hazardous movement. And that makes sense. You could imagine being out you know lifting big heavy things out in the open that would be considered hazardous movement. It makes sense to me. But clearing a mine is not hazardous movement. Look at that. Hmm. It's not. Oh, and uh, oh, yeah, I see that right there. Yep. So if you're clearing a mine in your movement phase, you're declaring yourself TI. If you're in open ground, say, I guess you could be shot at at zero modifier if you're in open ground. But no minuses, you know, unless, of course, there was leader directing it. But I'm, you know, talking about because of the movement. Right. The other interesting thing I learned, again, very simple, but until you actually take the time to make a chart like this, is look at the column that says minus one per sapper half squad or minus one per hero. Sometimes you get a minus one for sapper half squads, depending upon what it is, and sometimes you get a minus one for a hero. But like, for example, if you're clearing a roadblock, you know, sappers and heroes don't do you any good at all. Right. And I guess that kind of makes sense. Like, why would a hero or a sapper be any better at clearing a roadblock than any other ordinary person? Makes sense. But if you're clearing a mine, a hero and a sapper apparently are especially proficient at that. And you do get minus ones for uh, have or sapper, half squads, and or heroes for mine. So anyway, so this very quickly uh, categorizes and summarizes when you're doing hazardous movement, whether or not you can do it in the enemy's player turn or just your player turn and whether or not the sappers or the heroes are beneficial or not in the clearance role. I also learned, and again, this is where you know, it takes you like 10 times longer than you think it's going to, everybody knows about, or at least has heard of, clearing wire, clearing roadblock, clearing mines. But what I learned in doing my research was, well, clearing fall and rubble is something you can do, and it's also like clearing palm debris in Tarawa. Those are comparable to each other. So I got that. When you clear a roadblock, that's just like clearing a drift, I learned. The drift rules say clearing a drift is just like clearing a roadblock. Ah, okay. <clears throat> so I threw that in there. Clearing wire is like clearing a panji. Right. So I had to go, and this is where, again, it took me like a really long time, and sometimes I just sort of accidentally stumbled into this stuff. And I'm like, oh, well, I never even thought about clearing panjis. Is that a unique way to clear, or is it already captured by some other thing? Mm. And I learned, you know, in researching that clearing a panji is like clearing wire. So it's listed there. You can also clear jungle and bamboo, kind of. You can clear jungle and bamboo, and you see the footnotes I have there. You can make a path through the jungle uh, and bamboo. Right. You're not actually clearing it completely. Yeah. So I put that in there as well. So that's what. So 30A is clearing everything you can clear without a dozer. Okay. So there's no dozer happening here on 30A. Okay. But guess what 30B is? Yeah. So tell me about the next one. Yeah. Well, before we jump into that, I realize I forget one more column here. Oh, so okay. back on 30A. So, uh, so I talk about you know the outcome of you know rolling in the close combat phase usually and rolling less than two on the clearance roll at the end of the close combat phase assuming that you, you know, didn't pin or didn't break, you know, in the meantime. And then uh, I've also got as a helpful column the last column, which is, you know, there's other ways these things can be cleared that I learned, you know, again, in, in doing my homework. So sometimes, you know, an FFE or an HE bomb can clear some of these things, or like a tank, a fully tracked tank can move through a minefield and create a trail break 
if it you know can move through so I've got all those other things listed too of different ways that things can be removed and affected other than the pure clearance rules so just a handy chart and you know there's lots of scenarios that have that kind of stuff in it and you know if you're confronting that you want to know well how do I clear this stuff right and so this hopefully will be a handy way to you know quickly discern that yeah but then 30b is everything with a dozer and you wouldn't believe ah, okay. how hard i mean how often do we even use dozers not that often i don't think so i think the only time i have which might have also been the same time you have is when we played tarawa, tarawa. Yeah. We, we did have dozers as the marines and i remember researching it then but but that was just for tarawa yeah so here i tried to make a table that obviously doesn't just pertain to tarawa but pertains to you know the game in general and again, you know, maybe this one was a little over the top. I just did it for the purposes of being complete because almost never, and almost no one uses bulldozers. I can't imagine how many scenarios have a bulldozer in it. I frankly can't think of any. I'm sure there are some, but I, I'm unaware of any. But nevertheless, I made the table anyway. And here's all the things you can remove with a dozer many of which are the same as on the previous chart, but some are different. Hmm. You know, you can do a low seawall with a dozer. You can uh, crush a pillbox or a bomb proof, which they have in Tarawa, with a dozer. You can crush a single-story house with a dozer. You can uh, breach bocage or rice paddy with a dozer. So these are all the things you can do with a dozer, and again, it would have been too much to fit a, all the dozer specialty rules on the first table, which is why I expanded it to have the 30B, which is all the things you can do with the dozer. Gotcha. But I know that's a rarely used thing and probably won't get referenced that often, but it's it's here for completeness. Well, it's very impressive. I'm glad you included the dozer. You were going and the rules are in there, so it's going to be a lot easier for somebody to look up here than to, rather than going through the rule book, certainly, on those occasions when it does come up. That's right. And I also just think, again, even for my own purposes, I did not realize all the things that dozers can do as far as clearing, you know, rice patties and bocage and dense yeah. jungle. And, you know, these are things that you normally don't think of as being clearable. Right. But if you have a dozer, you can do some stuff. Well, maybe somebody will write more uh, scenarios with dozers in it, having seen your tables. There you go. Maybe I'll inspire you. You never somebody. know. Yeah. The same way Dave and I inspired you for clearance. And uh, as a... You know, as far as uh, the fact that we had screwed up quite a bit of it, you have to remember that this podcast is like a beautiful piece of marble. It is the flaws that make it so beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah. You know, I've listened to every podcast, Jeff. Yes, you, I know you, you, you have. You don't need to tell me that. I know how beautiful it is. And, you know, that brings to mind the fact that you were recently setting another record. Yes. By being by wearing a two half squads T-shirt at one of the lowest points on earth. Right. I know a yeah. lot of people uh, may think this is silly, but I've, you know, I think it's fun, and you know, I think the world of you and, and Dave. So I, uh, you know, think of these silly things, I guess. But yeah, I had submitted, I don't know, some years ago, a picture of myself with a half squad T-shirt. Yeah. Uh, at uh, a, we were on vacation as a family in Alaska, and we took a helicopter excursion to a glacier. Yeah. And I got the coordinates of how far north we were. And I sent them to you, and, and the presumption was that that was the furthest north that a half-squad shirt had ever traveled. Perhaps it's true. I don't know if it is, but it's got to be close if not. Yeah. And then on another vacation in another year, I wore my half-squad shirt, and we were going south, and we were on a cruise, and we went down near South America, 
and we were on some island someplace and I submitted a picture of myself and I was you know presuming that that would be for the furthest south that a half squad t-shirt had ever very traveled. possibly yeah and it was at some remote island where we were doing four wheeling something or other it was near Venezuela I forget but I gave you the latitude and the longitude at the time yeah and then recently just this last November after Thanksgiving actually early December my family and I went to Jordan and I no longer have my two half squads t-shirt because it kind of wore out from overuse <sighs> but I did have a two half squads hat yeah and I did wear it uh, and got a picture of myself that I submitted to you wearing the two half squads hat and we were at the Dead Sea my family and I is one of the last days of our vacation in, in Jordan and I captured the statistics of not just the latitude and longitude, but of course, being at the Dead Sea, that's where your, uh, what do you call that? Your uh, your elevation is a mm -hmm. big deal. Right. And we were, I can't remember what the statistics were, many, many hundreds of feet below sea level. Whatever right. it was, I sent it to you. Yeah. And gave you the, so that, that presumably is the lowest elevation and perhaps the furthest, I guess we'll call it east. It's Asia, so yeah, I'm not sure if it's east or west. But it's depends on far where you start, I guess. <laughs> we'll, that's right. Yeah. We'll, we'll go with far away. Yeah. But it's certainly the lowest elevation, I believe, that a half squad piece of equipment has uh, traveled. And so, yeah. Did you ha do you have that somewhere? Did you post it? Or um, I've got the picture, and the reason why I wanted to bring it up is I will post it with this episode. Okay. There you go. Yeah. And that was just in November. That was just a few months ago. Yeah. So. And if anybody wants to try to top that. They can certainly try. I won't stand. Or in just your way. send us a picture of you wearing some of your two half squads gear, which I guess we'll have to come up with some new two half squads gear if yours is wearing out, and we're going to have to replace that at some point. Yeah, my shirt wore out. I wore it too much. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your uh, devotion and <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> risking life and limb <laughs> to promote the two half squads. I don't know if the, if our hats are illegal in some countries. It's very possible. I'm sure everyone was looking at me as I was taking a picture of myself uh, out yeah, there. Yeah, probably. But no, the Dead Sea was really a great experience for my family and I. It was fun. It was a good vacation. Yeah, of all the of all the places to go. Yeah, Jordan's unique. Yeah. It's very unique. It's very interesting. Now I guess you want to tease us with a little something that you're working on for the future. Not another table, really, but tell us what else, uh, what other projects you've got going on. Well, one big project that I'm uh, right in the middle of that has taken, again, way longer than I thought it would, but I've made good progress, is a article that I'm writing, and I plan to submit it for the, uh, for the next ASL journal. And uh, hopefully they'll consider publishing it, and I'm hopeful that they will. But it's an article about, I'm going to call it the statistics of OBA or pertaining to the statistics of OBA. I'm not sure exactly what the title will be, but that's the topic. And so what I've done is I worked with Chris Edwards, who's another fellow squad leader player, and he is a professor of statistics at a university uh, in the state of Wisconsin. I apologize, Chris, I don't remember the name of the university that you're a professor at, but I know that you are a professor in statistics. And I reached out to him because I knew of his profession, I knew of his expertise in, in statistics, and I know a little bit about statistics, and I'm a, kind of a math guy myself, but I certainly don't know as much as he knows. And so I approached him a couple of ASL Opens ago, so like a year and a half ago, and I said, hey, I want to do some calculations on, you know, the number of black cards, the number of red cards in an OBA deck, you know, given the nationality or given the, you know, circumstances, and what are the expected number of draws, you know, black card, 
you know, uh, draws you can expect before you get the two red that right. mean that you're out yeah. based on the draw pile. And I also wanted to not just do that. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a step. That's an ingredient in the analysis. But I also wanted to, you know, but what are the odds of getting at least three or at least four or at least five? And I think that, you know, once this is all tabulated and, and shown, I think it might inform a lot of people. I mean, you know, one, as a player, if you're about to play a scenario that has OBA and you know that your draw pile, draw pile is X amount of black cards and X amount of Y cards, it'll give you a, at least a somewhat of a at least statistical expectation of I should get at least two black cards. So that might inform the way you go about your defense or your mm. attack, knowing yeah. that. Another way it could be used is for scenario designers. I'm not a scenario designer myself, but if I were a scenario designer, I would want to know, you know, what the impact is of giving an OBA module to one side or the other based on the draw pile, based on the circumstances. You know, this will give them some mathematical certainty in trying to balance the scenario to a certain degree. You know, obviously you can't control if somebody gets a 12 on their first radio roll right. and it breaks the radio. I mean, what are you going to do? But at least it gives them a, a little head start rather than having to go through lots of play testing and, and have the thing hammered out through that. Exactly. Method. It should give them a head start of, yeah. you know, about what to expect. Another way that the statistics can be used, in, in my opinion, that I'm hoping they will be used is in a lot of campaign games, you can buy an OBA module. And then sometimes it has scarce ammunition, normal ammunition, or plentiful, which will add an extra red card or an extra black card, as the case may be. But sometimes you're allowed to spend extra points in the campaign game to get a pre-registered hex. And when you get a pre-registered hex, that certainly gives you certain advantages, but it also gives you an extra black card. Hmm. And so I wanted to put some statistics around, well, hey, if I've already got a standard German 8-black three red draw pile and I add an extra black card to it, how does that help me? You know, I know it helps me, but like to what degree does that help me? Does that raise the likelihood that I'm going to get so many black cards? Does it raise the likelihood that I'm going to get at least three? How much does it raise that likelihood? In other words, is it worth spending that extra point to get that pre-registered hex, which includes, I mean, you also get the benefit of the pre-registered hex, which is really not mathematically measurable. Yeah, that might be worth something too. Right. Don't get me wrong; it's not just the extra black card, but at least it gives you some quantitative information about the benefit of the extra black card itself, which may or may not influence your decision to spend that extra point, you know, for that option in a campaign game. So what I've done is, and I don't want to spill the beans too much here because I have here in front of me, you can see, I have 40 some graphs, 40 some. Wow. I'm not kidding. Because we evaluated, Chris and I, so I, got, I mentioned Chris Edwards earlier. Chris did the spreadsheets that do these calculations for me. Mm. He did a great job. He's very bright, very you know, gifted in this, in this area. Uh, I know Excel pretty well myself. I know statistics okay, but believe me, he's on a whole new level that, that I can't uh, match. So he did all kinds of calculations for me and, and put, up, put the spreadsheets together so that I could you know, do all these different permutations and combinations. And so we did every single draw pile of every single nationality. We did every single, everything. We did, you know, there is no combination of red and black cards that's possible in the game that we didn't simulate. 
Wow. And so we've got all that available, and we'll put that in, in you know in, in the paper that we're writing. The uh, so you know you'll be able to ask yourself questions like you know if you've got the British nine black and you know I guess they have plenty of ammunition. It's nine black and two red. You know what does that look like, for example, compared to the Japanese that have this and that. Anyway, you'll be able to compare anything you want to compare, and have a pretty good level of understanding. Now. That is what I'll call the easy part, even though it doesn't sound that easy. <laughs> it doesn't sound, yeah. Let me tell you about the hard part, and I, I hesitate to go this far because I think this is going to be the real uh, value of the, of the paper. But I'll say it just to you know, hopefully get the interest up. A lot of people are familiar with what's called the Pleva rule. Right. And Steve Pleva, who's a very respected, uh, well-regarded expert player in the game and I, I know Steve uh, I've, I've played with Steve I met him we've talked um, he came up with this thing called the, the Pleva rule and his his purpose as I understand it and, and I've discussed this with him a little bit his purpose in the Pleva rule was to prevent those circumstances where like the OBA player got like no black cards and like drew red right off the bat or drew two reds right off the bat and yeah. basically made the OBA module you know worthless and so he created a rule, and I, as I understand the Pleva rule, the Pleva rule is that unlike the regular standard rules where once you've drawn two red cards and you're done with your OBA module, his rule is there is no limit to the amount of red cards you can draw. You can draw red cards all day and you can keep trying. But if you draw a red card, even the first one, you don't remove it from the deck like you do in the regular rules. You put it back in the deck and you put in another red card. So, right. in, in, so right. but you never have to stop drawing either. Yeah. So again, as a simple example, if you start off with five black and two red, like the Russian draw pile, and you happen to draw one of the reds, you'll put that red back in, so you're back to five two, but then you put another red in, and now you're at five three, and you draw again. And if you draw another red, you're not done, but you put that red back, and then you throw another red in, and now you're at five, five four. four. Yeah, and you can do that perpetually and do that forever under the Pleva rule, and at least you have a chance then to get that black card. So I tell you what, Chris Edwards, I give a lot of credit to Chris. He wrote a spreadsheet that you wouldn't believe, that calculates because now that's different. It, it, it was it was hard enough to do the one that does the regular rules yeah. of once you get the two red. Which doesn't and you're really done. seem like it would be that hard, but uh, if you don't think about if you think about it for a couple of minutes, you can start to see how it gains complexity. It does. Uh, so he uh, wrote one that does the Pleva rules. And so I learned, we all learned a lot because, um, you know, I'll just say some generalities without naming any specifics. Uh, and this goes true for the Pleva rules and for the standard squad leader rules. So if you're playing a long scenario, like a big giant scenario that's 10 or more turns, you know, you're going to have a lot of draws, you know, assuming your radio doesn't break, right. assuming that you're... Uh, Radio observer, you know, stays in good order, you know, all those. If you put them in a safe place way in the back, you might have a lot of opportunities to draw a lot of OBA modules. If you're playing a regular, ordinary, shorter scenario, five, six, seven turns, well, even if your radio never breaks and your your observer or your radio holder is always in good order, you just aren't going to draw that many cards. And so I will say that the number of draws... You know, theoretically, you can have infinite number of draws, right? At least with the Pleaver rules, you could. Yeah. 
But in reality, you know, the average game, you're not going to get that many draws. Even in a long game, you're not going to get gobs of draws. Right. So we try to put some parameters around this, like what is a good amount of draws and what's a lot of draws and what's a medium amount of draws. So you'll see we had to put some limitations on the statistical calculations and we compare the PLEVA rules to the regular rules and we'll draw some comparisons. I don't want to reveal too much. I'll put it in the article. But uh, we do show the differences and the trade-offs of using the PLEVA rules and the advantages and disadvantages. And so let me just leave it at that and you know, people can wait for the article when we have it completed. But I think they'll find it very informative. The other thing I, sh I have to mention before we get off the topic is one of the things that inspired this is I have here way in my old, old archives an article from the general, volume 24, <laughs> number 2. I think it's from 1987. Whoa. I don't even know if it's from 1987, to be honest with you. There's an article in here that's titled 1987, so I'm assuming it's 87. Maybe this is an 88 article. I don't know. But it's, give or take a year, it's around 1987. And it was written by Robert Medro, and he was the first person to write about OBA. And he did a marvelous job of calculating the statistics of mm. OBA, even back then. And he didn't have the modern computer technology in 1987 or 88. Right. Like we have today. There was no such thing as Excel. I don't even know if they had Lotus back then. I'm not sure if they did or not. Possibly, but I, I don't know either. I don't think they did. So I think, and if you read his article, which I have, he talks about how he wrote some kind of program that actually simulated, you know, thousands of card draws to create the statistics, whereas Chris Edwards was able to just calculate using statistical formulas the exact statistical outcomes. This guy just had to simulate thousands and thousands of card draws to get the outcomes. But I will say on the on the overlap between his paper from 1987 in the general and my paper that'll have tables some of the tables are similar to the ones he had way mm -hmm. back mm -hmm. we match exactly oh you do so he's doing okay. something right or we're doing something right yeah. or we're both doing something right because it was on the areas where we do overlap in content our tables match precisely so that was reassuring but we're taking it in a little different direction than robert medro did but what robert medro did was fantastic even in 1987 it's it's very comprehensive and very well done he probably, I, I was just thinking, he probably was using VisiCalc back in those days on a, on an Apple computer or something he like that. He talks about how he did it, and it, it was beyond me. I don't know. Okay, and did you, uh, you reached out to him, didn't you? Did you? I tried to find him. Uh, I, uh, somehow I got a, I think I got a phone number, and I tried to send him a text message. I didn't get a response. I don't know if it really was a cell phone or not. Yeah, I, okay. I, I didn't have much luck. Yeah. I wanted to let him know that I was writing a new article that was kind of springboarding from the one he wrote ages ago. How many years ago was that? 32? 87? I hate to think so, but yes, you're right. 97, 07, 17. Yeah, 32. Your your calculations are correct, sir. So I don't know. Uh, I, I don't. If someone knows where I can reach him, I'd like to send him an email at least and yeah. you know let him know that I'm doing this and maybe even get even get his input if he's interested in, in providing it. He did, a, he did a great job. Should be a great article. When when do you expect this to be your article to be ready for publication? Well, this is this is uh, coming up on June of 2019 <laughs> as we record this. Yes. Yes. And so you'll uh, let's see. Uh, it's going to take me a while. It, it, this is this is a heavy lift. Yeah. But now that I got those rules tables done, from right. your encouragement. Uh, now this is my next big project, but it's probably going to take me at least a few months. But I hope to submit it to MMP 
uh, certainly in the you know fall time frame. Yeah. Good. Well, if I can be of any assistance, which I just can't even imagine, uh, let me know. Yeah, well, I'd like you to proofread it maybe and tell me if it makes sense. And if you're comfortable, you could be one of my proofreaders. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I'll take you up but on But I that. look forward to it, and I hope people enjoy, you know, getting getting the information. And, you know, hopefully, again, like everything I write, rules tables or this article, I hope that it helps people in their play. You know, helps you make decisions. And there will be a special place in heaven for you because <laughs> okay. of that. I hope that's true. Okay. Well, we're we're really uh, taxing your brain here tonight on a lot of topics, but you've got more. Well, I do have one more. Something you'd like to discuss? And yes, you are exhausting me, Jeff. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> I am getting tired. But I apologize. But it was uh, it's my pleasure to uh, you know share this with folks and I hope they enjoy it. So, just recently, just a couple months ago, I uh, wrote a very long article. It's over 20 pages long, and it has all kinds of charts and tables in it and pictures even. And I submitted it to the to the Bonsai guys down in Texas, who uh, I've become friends with. And they published in uh, volume 24, number one, in March of two nine, 2019, just a couple months ago, they published this uh, article I wrote. And it's about, it's a very thorough analysis of that big giant scenario that I think you've seen called, it's RB5, it's called The Last Bid. Right, yes. And that scenario has been around for... I don't know, at least 20, maybe 30 years. Right. And I know as a young squad leader player that I was at that time when Red Barricades first came out in the early 90s, I think it was, I remember dreaming of, wow, would that be fun to play that scenario? Look how big that turkey is. It's two pages long. And, you know, here in the the article I talk about, you know, how many, you know, squads it has. Let me look at it here real quick here and refresh my own memory. I know I have some stats. There's 21 game turns, 150 squads, you know, for, for both sides, between both sides. It's got guns and fortifications and, you know, uh, you know, gobs of reinforcements, like 40 multi-man counter reinforcements, 28 AFVs as reinforcements. It's got mines. It's got wire. It's got it all. Both sides get OBA. So it's got it all. And so... Uh, I've played it now three times, and each time, you know, I had different opponents and played different sides. Uh, there is an episode that you have recorded, uh, the Half Squad show, that's actually episode 183. So that was, I don't know how many months ago, maybe more than a year ago. This is this is 224 we're recording now. Yeah. So, so it was, it was 40, some time ago. 40 episodes, we do about two a month, so... So more than a year ago, maybe two years ago. But anyway, in episode 183, if people want to download it, we did discuss at that time, I think that was my second plane that was discussed in episode 183. But I went ahead and played it a third time with a friend of mine at ASLOC just this past October, and we had agreed to play it together and take photographs and and write a pre and post, you know, kind of review of the scenario. Yeah. And so um, we did that. And so this article, it's 20-some pages long, like I said. And so I feel like I've really evaluated the heck out of this scenario. I mean, I feel like, you know, maybe others have evaluated it more than I have. I know there's a lot of write-up on the uh, Board Game Geek. Or not Board Game Geek. The, uh, what do you call that? The uh, Game Squad? Yes, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. I know there's a lot of write-up on the Game Squad forums about this scenario. So I'm sure I'm not the only one to write about it or talk about it. But I will say that I'm the first one to really like analyze it to death and put um, the initial setup and and my thinking of why I put my units the way I did and 
and you know my opponent did the same and, and his write-up is in here too and so I'm not going to go through it in great detail but I'll just cover the highlights of you know you know we had our we, we did the setup we did our strategy we recorded what happened every single turn um, we got every single hex recorded of how we did it and then we took pictures at the end of each turn describing what happened and I guess at the end of the day if I just skip to the end and you know so I guess what I'm saying is a couple things if you want to play this scenario I strongly recommend you read this article because this will give you a huge head start into understanding the tactics and the strategy mm. from both sides and then I also recommend if you get to the end of the article you'll see that I have some recommendations because I feel that after playing it now three times and experiencing it with different opponents that it is pro-German the record also indicates that it's pro-German the rural record and I talk about what I think should be done strictly my opinion but I talk about some tweaks that are doable where you still have the feel of the scenario and the, and the fun of the scenario but it'll make it more balanced and more fun and more likely for the Russians to win which I think and I think they need a little help the Russians do to win this scenario and so I'm not going to go through what those things are now but I do list them in the article I think I got four or five tweaks to both sides that will uh, allow that to happen but some fun things that I want to point out in the article that are fun and unique is I have a picture at the end of the big giant factory that the Germans have to take out uh, and I, re I removed all the counters except for obviously the factory itself and I, and I left in like all the trail breaks and the minefields and the breaches and the uh -huh. fires I left all the I guess the terrain related right. counters and I cleared out all the infantry and the AFVs and the leaders and the machine guns and stuff like that and it's just I think it's just a lot of fun this is my favorite picture in the whole article where you can see there's like nine minefield hexes there's 10 trail break counters some of which were caused by fully tracked AFEs we talked about the trail breaks going through minefields right in the previous uh, discussion uh, one of the trail breaks was made by an infantry clearance attempt most of them were made by the AFEs though there's six different breaches some of them were from fully tracked AFEs some were with DCs some are on the exterior walls some are on the interior walls so you can see all the carnage just the physical terrain related carnage in this picture of the mines the trail breaks the breaches the uh, tanks that were immobilized and destroyed the fires the it's just crazy I mean but this is what it takes to take on a heavily defended factory you know with fanatic Russians yeah and attacking it with everything you got as the German and the back and forth that went on through that whole you know battle and that's a lot of fun I mean but it's very intense and it took a long time oh yeah but, but I couldn't resist removing all the non-essential pieces when we were done and just taking a picture of the I guess the the terrain related ones yeah. which people might find interesting that's great the other fun thing that happened was I recorded some weird stuff we had happen just weird stuff that you just just don't see but when you play a big scenario like this weird weird stuff happens that can like you, that you can't predict can you give me uh, a taste uh, yeah I'll give, I'll give you a couple of them so okay. um, we don't need to do all of them but I list them all here so we had one situation that I've never had happen before which we talk about in the article where we had two leaders an 8-0 and an 8-1 and three multi-man counters and they had to take a morale check okay so two two eight morale level leaders one's an eight one one's an eight oh and then three mmc's so the eight oh leader 
went berserk. And so the rules say that, you know, when a leader goes berserk, he has to try to make everybody in the hex go berserk. Okay, well, the MMCs, the multiple encounters, didn't go berserk. They rolled high. But the 8-1 did go hmm. berserk because of the 8-0, but none of the MMCs did. They, were all, they all rolled high, you know, just weird situation. So then, like, okay, well, now that the 8-1 went berserk, does he now have to try to make the MMCs go berserk yeah, I would a think second so. time? I, I would think so. But that's... Yeah, and we, we, we did agree that that would be the interpretation of the rule. Yeah. So that he tried, and two of the three multi-band counters went berserk, but that third one still didn't go berserk. Yeah. And, and those got the minus one modifier of the 8-1 of the leader, you know, causing them to try to go berserk that, right. on that second try. Right. So that was weird. Yeah, that you, is weird. You don't see that every day. Then we had another one where, uh, this is weird. So we had a nine negative two leader that rolled a 12 on his morale check, and he was with eight morale multi-man counters. Can I, he, can, can I ask you a question? Yeah. At, at the risk of uh, interrupting your flow. <clears throat> yeah, that's good. When the 8-0 went berserk, he had actually taken his morale check second after the eight neg, neg one leader, right? Uh, yes. The 8-0 did. So then... Um, did he do the leader first, or did he do the squads first? Did he try to make the squads? Well, what, the way you do it is, it was a normal morale check, as I recall. Yeah. So the 8-1 went first, he passed. Right. 8-0 went second, rolled a 2. Okay. Um, I think, as I recall, at that point, we knew that he rolled a 2, and that he would need to do the heat of battle, not realizing it was going to cause him to go to berserk yet. Oh, right. And so we did the normal morale check against the other guys. Okay. And whether they passed or whether they broke doesn't, I mean, unless they roll a 12 and casualty broke. Yeah. But if they just broke, it doesn't really matter. Right. Because he's still going to try to make them go berserk. I guess you'd be using their broken morale if it was different rather than their good order morale. In this case, those two things were the same. Yeah. They were just ordinary German squads in this case. Yeah. So their broken morale was seven, and their unbroken morale was still seven. But anyway, so then we rolled for the heat of battle on the 8-0. Then we determined that he went berserk. Okay. And then he tried to make everybody else go berserk. Gotcha. Uh, but anyway, so another example. We had a 9-2 leader who was with some 8 morale uh, multi-man counters. And again, it was, a, it was a, some kind of morale check result of some sort. Let's just call it a normal morale check. And the 9-2 leader rolled a 12 which, of course, is, means he's at least wounded. And indeed, he wounded. He did not die. He wounded. So now he is a broken, wounded, 9, negative 2. So he's kind of like an 8, negative 1, you know, because his morale goes down by 1 and his leadership goes down by 1 because he's wounded. <coughs> and he's broken because yeah. he obviously broke. Okay, so at this point, um, you know, we were wondering, because then we pa I think the uh, squads passed their... Morale checks that you know the, the ones that the, that caused the leader to become wounded. And then the question was, his morale now as a wounded guy is eight, which is equal to the eight morale of the squad. So do they have to take one task ten, one pin checks or two pin checks, or do they take no pin check at all? And I think we played it that because his morale is now eight. They didn't have to do anything because their morale was also 8. But in looking at the rules and the official Q&A since then, I determined, and I put this in the article, that you're supposed to use the pre-wounded ah, okay. uh, 
statistic, you know, for this purpose. So they would have had to take a two pin check because he was a nine negative two leader. So A, his morale was nine, which is greater than eight, and his, his leadership rating was negative two, even though now it's negative one, and they should have had to take two pin checks, plus two pin checks. Yeah. But we didn't apply that at the time. So that was something I learned. Um, another interesting thing happened where... Uh, we had a fully tracked AFV. You know, I told you I was trying to breach all these minefields. Yeah. Well, some of them were in debris hexes. And you can move a fully tracked AFE into, into debris, but it could bog. Okay. So sure enough, I went cruising into a debris hex on purpose, knowing there was a minefield there, hoping to create a trail break through the minefield and into the debris. But I bogged in the debris. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, that's okay. I bogged but I still get a partial trail break for the half way that I got through. And if I unbog in my next movement phase and I shoot out the other side, that'll create the trail break that I desire. So I thought, but my opponent pointed out to me, and I had no idea until I read these rules more carefully, it says, and I, I'm going to quote here in the rules, uh, per the trail break rules, we read that a wreck or immobile vehicle on a trail break counter removes that trail break. So if you become bogged, which is immobile by definition in the index, you don't get that partial trail break, which means that even if I did unbog and shoot out the other side, like I you know, intended to do to create the trail break, you don't create a trail break. Uh, so you yeah. kind of have to start all over again and crash through again, and, through not, again. and not bog. Yeah. So that threw me for a loop because yeah. I didn't think... Oh, yeah. I knew I had the possibility of bogging, but I thought that it would still be okay even if I bogged because I thought I could just keep, you know, assuming I unbogged. I could still create the trail break later, possibly, but I learned that you can't do that. And that probably comes up fairly often. It probably does. Scenarios. Yeah. So that's just Unlike a taste. That I don't need to beat it to death. There's some other examples in there, too, that were kind of oh, fun. That's great stuff. That... And, you know, again, I think my main contribution, though, is not just the entertainment of the outcome and the back and forth and the scenario, but I do list five or six suggestions. And I really hope somebody takes me up on that. I hope somebody takes my suggestions, plays the scenario yeah. with my suggestions against an equal opponent, and then gets back to me and says, hey, you know, that made it better, or, you know, we're still not there yet. We still need to do something, or, you know, whatever they might say. I'd like to know what their experience is. You think you'll revisit this scenario again in your lifetime? Well, maybe someday. You know, I noticed that in the new, you know, since then, I received that the new Red Factories right. module. Yeah. And there is in that a, uh, a you know the the RB5 scenario is in there again, obviously without my changes in it, right? Because it's the same old one that's been in there forever. Uh, you know, I don't know if they would have considered putting my changes in or not, but uh, certainly I didn't even submit them, you know, in time for that to happen, even you know for it to be considered. But then I also noticed there's a big giant scenario on the other map, on the new Red Factories map, and then I noticed they have a big. Big is just too, big's not even a big enough word. They have an enormous scenario where you play the RB5 giant scenario on the, the Red Barricades map, and at the same time you play the other giant scenario on the Red Factories map. Whoa. That to me is mind-boggling. That is mind-boggling. Uh, and you play them both at the same time. So, wow. <laughs> so I guess your question was, will I ever play this again? Hmm. Uh, if I do, I certainly want to try to maybe do the big, giant, huge thing, yeah. you know, where you're playing both of them. And then and then I would have to discuss with my opponent 
how they want to incorporate my advice here on the red, because I think the, the red barricades one is pro-German based on what I just got done saying and based on my analysis here. But I don't know how that'll affect the red factories, uh, you know, side of the thing, because right. I, haven't, I haven't played that one yet. Yeah. So maybe I'll play the red factories one first, see what I think about that as far as play balance. And then, you know, based on that, maybe playing the combo, you know, with some of my advice or, you know, based on what I learned on the Red Factory side may, may have an effect. But, you know, I need to be retired to have that kind of time. That's going to take. Or it, listeners, maybe you want to donate to Rich Spilkey's Retirement Fund. There Get him retired a little earlier. And uh, we sure would like to hear about that if you play that again. But don't take away from your donations to the two half squads and doing that. Uh, right. Yeah, Dave would never hear of that. No, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting yeah. that. Neither one of us are. And one last question. Did you um, draw from other articles when you were doing your strategizing for playing this? Oh, yes, I did. Well, that's why I mentioned I mean, you briefly. said you had played it twice before. Oh, yes. Did, you, did uh, you also go to other articles? Well, yeah, I mentioned that I saw some articles on Game Squad and some reviews oh, on Game Squad. Okay. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I had researched those and read some of those yeah. and got advice from some of those, and it certainly got my got me thinking. And uh, but, you know, But there's nothing like obviously doing your own analysis yeah. and your own. But certainly those articles were very helpful to get started and got me thinking about this, that, and the other. So, yeah, it's good that people post that kind of stuff because I think it is helpful to, for other players. Yeah, and you were satisfied with uh, with what you did. Yes, I was. Yeah. I, if you read the oh, article, good. you'll see, uh, you know, it was very thoroughly analyzed by both of us, and we both, you know, really wanted to put our best foot forward. Well, we'll put a, we'll, we will put a link to that exact bonsai volume on the show notes so people can go there and download it. And uh, that's great. Amazing stuff, Rich. Well, thanks, Jeff. I'm always glad to join your program. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, being with us tonight. Always great to see you. Great 100% ASL talk. This is a good one. So looking forward to having you on again. Well, you always say it's the only podcast dedicated 100%. 100%. Might be be more than 100% this time. (laughs) We might have approached that. Yeah. So here we are. Hi, Rich. Hello, Jeff. So you have another one-third squad with me. Yes. And you also have another one-third squad across the table. Across representing the generation of 20-year-olds, 20, how old are you, Jared? 23. 23. Representing all 23-year-olds throughout the world, Jared Spilkey. Not to put a lot of pressure on you, but well, were you awarded that? Was you Were you voted for this honor, or how uh, that how this come about? It was me. Uh, <laughs> I'm a man who will do what is required. Like Winston Churchill said, it's not enough to do do your best. best. You must do what is required. And apparently it is required of me to represent my generation for this uh, podcast. So I'll do what is required. Wow. I will help you through it. (laughs) I appreciate that. And you might want to refresh your your listeners' memory that this is not the first time that Jared has appeared on one of your podcasts. Oh, no. He's an old hand at it. He is a, a veteran. It was... To, it was 124 episodes ago, I think. Something like that, that Jared was last on. That's correct. Seems like just yesterday. Epi- um, yeah. yeah, episode 100, you graced us with your presence. Yes, I was honored to be in the 100th episode. What year was it? Do you know, Jeff? No, I don't know offhand. You were 15 or 16 episode. or something. Yeah. I believe I was still in high school at that time. Yeah, so, I'm sure yeah. you were high school. Yeah. Since then, my, my views of the world have been dramatically altered by my great experience yeah. in university. 
<laughs> well, that remains to be seen. <laughs> so what? Anyway, we're glad you could join us, and you're you're just with us for a little while. What else is going on tonight? Uh, I'll be heading out with some friends to watch the NBA Finals game uh, in downtown Downers Grove. So. Oh, I love soccer. <laughs> uh, this is hand soccer, basketball. Oh, basketball. And you're joining us as a squad leader, not player, I would say. Is that right? Yes, I'm definitely more towards the not player end of the <laughs> spectrum. I've had short mini lessons from my dad in the past couple of weeks about how the movement works, movement with a leader, movement without a leader, as well as uh, morale checks. I was giving them basic lesson on that, but I would say I'm a war gamer, but I have not yet learned squad leader significantly. Now, since your dad isn't here right now and not listening, don't listen, Rich. Is he coercing you and like strapping you down, taping you? I noticed you're, you had like um, duct tape marks on your wrists. <laughs> well, not exactly. It's not exactly coercing me. We play other board games together, and every now and then he'll say, come on, just come over here and let me give you a quick lesson. I'll be like, eh, I'd rather do this. I'm like, oh, come on, it'll take 10, 15 minutes, and then he'll give me a brief lesson on it, and I learn a little bit more. Maybe it's maybe someday I'll actually play a scenario, but for now, I'm content with these mini lessons. But at some point, I, I would try it. It does seem like there's a big learning curve, though, with it. So. Yeah, I would have to agree with you there. And how uh, your older brother somehow, he's never played, has he? So how did he get him? How did he get he out? He might have tried once, but well, he doesn't. He, he, when he graduated from college, he immediately you know, was working in a different city and living elsewhere. So You think that had something to do with it? The For fact sure. that you wanted him to play squad leader oh, so badly? Do I, just, do, uh, do I think I, that I, had something to do I with it? I am moving to central <laughs> Illinois. Do what it takes to leave? Yeah. I uh, hope that that's not why. Yeah, I hope so, too. But I never asked the question. Oh, okay. All right. But, Jared, you play other games. What kind of games do you play? Sure. So I play some more casual games like Settlers of Catan. I love playing that. I, the first time I played that game, it was, of course, on the board. And I played it with my family. I played it with friends in college. A lot of my college friends really love Catan. Um, and then, recently... Um, my brother and I, since he's in central Illinois, we started playing that game online together because there's an application on your iPhone now. So now we're playing a board game online. What? Really? Right. And so I really enjoy that game. And games like that are great because Catan, at least compared to other games I've played, is relatively simple. For other less experienced board game players, it might be considered complicated. But for me, it's a relatively simple game. I've played it a million times, though, too. Um, it's a more casual game. You could quote-unquote have a beer during um but i also play games that are much more advanced than Catan, like paths of glory um here i stand virgin queen i've played all these games before but something i should add is i never really i don't think i've fully read the rule books for those games ever from cover to cover i've read snippets of the rule book that are relevant to what i'm doing in the game but because my dad is such a great teacher of these games and I was able to enjoy them with, I guess you could say, minimal effort on my part because I didn't have to buy the game. I didn't have to learn the game the first time. So you learned by playing. I learned by playing. Yeah. Um, and my dad's a great teacher 
of these games. Well, thank you, Jared. I've never heard you say that before. I'm, I have a tear rolling down my cheek. Is that what that is? Yes. Yeah. That is <laughs> touching. It is touching. Kleenex. And you've got it. We've got it recorded, Rich. So you can play this back now. I think I will. I'm gonna have to save it. Yeah. My dad's a great teacher. You could have that as put that as the ringer on your phone. <laughs> so sure. well, that, that's nice to know. And um, and you play video games. I do. Uh, like I, lots of video games. I yeah, I, I definitely enjoy my video games. Um, some I would say mostly first person shooters. Uh, like Halo, uh, especially when I was in high school, I played a lot of Halo. Halo. Yeah. Really fun. Like um, Halo. I played uh, my, some of my friends to this day. We still play Call of Duty together on Xbox. Um, we really enjoy it. Did you play Borderlands? I never played that game. Oh, my but, wife and I love that game. Yeah, great game. Yeah. First person shooter. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, I I would say I mostly stuck with Call of Duty and Halo, but I also played RP MMORPGs. I played World of Warcraft. My dad couldn't stand that one. Probably spent too many hours in middle school playing World of Warcraft in hindsight, but. It's a really addicting game. Blizzard really, uh, they knew how to make people addicted. So good job for them. Yeah. Um, I also played some Civilization before, and I think Civilization is a good example of how someone like my dad can also enjoy a video game because it's a, it's a much slower-paced game. It's turn-based, um, I guess, RTS is what they would call it. I think it stands for... Um, Real-time real strategy. Real-time strategy, I believe. Yes. And that... And that's a game I enjoy, and it's also a game that my dad has in the past enjoyed as well, because um, it's slower paced, which is more like the board games that he enjoys. Yeah, thoughtful. Right, as opposed to having a quick trigger finger and. Right. You know, one thing I would add, just a small sidebar that people might find interesting, is when my boys were younger, and they were really into the, um, what was the name you were talking about, the, the shoot 'em up game that you were talking about a moment ago? Uh, Halo. 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 Oh, Halo. Halo. I think it was Halo. They were really into that, like when, say, my older son was, uh, say, 17 and Jared was perhaps 13, give or take. Uh, I took them to a shooting range, a real rifle shooting range Oh. Uh, here in Illinois. I don't know how many miles away it was, maybe 10 or 12 miles away, just to try real shooting with a real 22 rifle, uh, you know, at a 50-foot target, not, not far, but, you know, the traditional 50-foot short-range uh you know, and I was in high school. I did that a lot. I was on a rifle team in high school. Anyway, but I wanted them to see how hard it is to really shoot a real rifle accurately because I see them on the video game, you know, jumping around and leaping over the railing and tripping down the steps and, you know, shooting from these action poses accurately and, and hitting their target accurately from long distances while running, while twisting and turning. And, you know, in real rifle shooting, you are completely still. You're lying down in the prone position. That's the easiest position where you're the most stable. And it's really, really hard to aim the rifle and control your breathing and aim accurately and get your eyesight lined up and to hit the target accurately. And both of them, as I knew they would, you know, for the first time, it was hard and it was a struggle. And they were very inaccurate, which, you know, all beginning shooters are inaccurate. But I wanted to know how hard it was, really, to shoot accurately. It's not easy. It's not like the game. Yeah. Did that surprise you, Jared? You know, I was expecting I was going to be able to do a 360 no-scope while a person's going up a gravity lift like <laughs> in Halo. I, I was very surprised when reality did not meet my expectation. No, no, it didn't surprise me. I, I, didn't, I never enjoyed Halo because of it being realistic. It's just a really fun, well-designed game. Yeah. Um, 
and a lot of my friends played it, my brother's friends, my brother's friends played it, but I, of course, you have to acknowledge that it's not, definitely not realistic. It's a game that takes place in, like, 300 years in, in the future, and, but also Call of Duty, as well, obviously isn't realistic either. Um, yeah, right. But they're not, they're not meant to be, I don't think. Right, no, they're just meant to be fun. And it, it's, it's interesting, because your, your dad referred to this earlier, when he and I were young, back in the days of almost black and white TV, like I grew up with black and white TV, <laughs> we didn't have that much stuff to do. There weren't that many forms of entertainment, certainly compared to what we've got now. And so, I mean, you're, li- you're living in a world where you've got so many choices for what's going to take up your time. Whereas when we were young, it's you could listen to music, you could watch TV, you could play a game. You know, I mean, there's there was plenty to do. But now there's so much to do with video games and different kinds of video games and all the different media available to you. Netflix. So your dad often wonders why you don't love ASL. And out of all the things that there are to do, why ASL isn't something that you've picked, can you say yet why it doesn't float your boat? Well, to be really truthful, I'm not entirely sure if it floats my floats my boat or not because uh-huh. I've never given it a chance. So I guess I would be willing to give it a chance a little bit. You can put I that on your finger also, Rich. I gave Pads of Glory yeah. a chance, and I really enjoyed that game a lot, even though I, I was hesitant at first. But then I saw my dad and brother playing it, and I watched, and I was like, oh, this, this game seems kind of cool. It does seem to be, though, for most people that are my age, there would be a really large learning curve. Yeah, it's huge. It's and it just looking across from me at this rule book. That right there. Those are just the charts. The rule. That's it. <laughs> that's like the charts. Is that that's not the whole rule book, is it, Rich? No, those are just my charts. Just just Rich's charts. Yeah, the rules are can be uh, overwhelming looking. I don't know. I give you a lot of credit for uh, giving it a try and being open to the idea that it might be something that you want to do. So uh, I hope you stick with it at least so you can make an intelligent. Uh, informed decision as to whether or not it's something you want to pursue and then maybe get other people involved in it too because rich said i mean you've said uh you kind of hope that younger more younger people will get involved in the game well yeah by this point you know i think we all kind of admit the truth those are you know those of us that are in our 50s or 60s that still play asl and guys in their 70s too that are still playing we know it's too late i mean our hobby is going to die we just have to say that out loud it's sad and i think we're all sad about it but we just don't have any 20 year olds 30 year olds coming up i'm sure there's a few exceptions maybe here and there i have seen on a couple of occasions of tournaments that i've attended a 20 year old uh son or a 20 something year old son of a of another player you know not not unlike my son's age you know playing but that's pretty rare that's you know, maybe one out of, you know, 50 squad players have their sons playing. I haven't done a formal statistical analysis. That's just uh, just shooting from the hip observation. Yeah. But I think it's sad because the squad leader game has just evolved into such a terrific system. And, uh, you know, all the questions, or maybe not all, that's too strong of a statement, but, you know, virtually all the questions have been answered and all the discrepancies have been addressed in one way or another. There's so many scenarios that are out there covering so many aspects of the war. There's so many boards uh, that simulate all the different kinds of terrain you can dream of. 
there's all the nationalities and all the equipment and all the research and all the you know literal love and passion that went into developing all that material and information and rules and uh, you know the special rules for the you know different campaign games and oh my goodness the research is just off the charts and you know my small contribution that I am happy that I've done is you know the rules tables trying to summarize some of the rules that's the little bit of contribution I've done but so many other people have done so many other things and you've had a lot of those guests on your program you know over the you know past 10 years that you've had the podcast yeah you've, you've interviewed a number of, of folks that have contributed so that's what's sad about it is there's going to be, I mean, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that somehow it gets a new resurgence of interest. Uh, and all of a sudden people, because I think if, it, if it, the younger generation pick it up, they're going to just inherit this enormous blessing of all the work that came before them of making the game as awesome as it is. They're going to inherit all that, all those things that have already been done and accomplished. They don't have to do that. They could just receive that as a blessing. I think that's the title for this episode. Receive it as a blessing. Receive it as a blessing. ASL. <laughs> Receive it as a blessing. <laughs> okay, sounds like a title. It is hard to imagine that the game will just go away at some point, but it is possible. Just like nobody plays Parcheesi anymore, for instance. Uh, probably a few people do, but you know, the old games just go away. Or it's or possible, by something it's possible that someone might get inspired by it and rediscover it and you know morph it into something else. Perhaps it'll maybe turn into you know. It's hard to predict the future. Who knows? But. It's, it really is a treasure of research and time and effort that many, many, many people over the decades have put in to, I'll call it, perfecting the game system yeah. and perfecting, oh, perfecting it. And it's, it's just terrific. And obviously, whether my sons end up playing or not isn't going to change you know, the world. But it would be fun, I must admit personally, that if, if my son Jared or my son Eric did get interested and did like it, they... Uh, you know, like you said, make an informed decision. I think that they would see how rich and how deep it is. Well, you could always have more kids. <laughs> there you go. Good suggestion. So, Good idea. And the world population is growing, so maybe there is hope. There will be very little room to play, but there will be people to play in the future. Good point. Yeah. I think one of your niche target audiences would be history majors. I wasn't a history major, but I'm a big history buff, I would say. And other people that I play games with that are actually in their 30s and 40s that are friends of my dad and myself, they were history majors in college and they love things like this, they're going to be more inclined to want to play a game like Squad Leader if you're interested in history. Yeah. Yeah, no question about that. And a lot of people are still very interested in World War II. It still seems to be a hot topic in gaming and in history in general. So anyway, well, thanks for joining us, Jared. Thank you. Do you have any uh, parting comments for your generation? I do not have many parting comments um, other than I'd just like to say that there is something, there is a value to playing board games in person that's different than playing a video game online. I can appreciate both of them. There is certainly a value to the games like Squad Leader, Paths of Glory that you can't get out of the video game. Yeah. So I, and you, and I you hope it doesn't die. Yeah, good. And with that, we'll uh, put that on your ringer. All right. Oh, maybe you, maybe that should be the episode title. I hope it doesn't die. No, that doesn't sound that good. Put it on your ringer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that. Yeah. 
Oh, it was nice of Jared to join us. Yeah, it was fun to hear him uh, join us too, and yeah. he says things here in the podcast that I've never heard him say. Yeah. So you bring out the best it, of them. It, yeah, so well, I hope that was the best. And maybe it's not even the best. Maybe the best is yet to be. But, you know, what What could really win him over to a squad leader, I think, is more tables. More rules tables. Absolutely. More rules tables. Yes, as if uh, he's not intimidated enough by the ones we have. Right. Well, they wouldn't have to read the rules. If you just had the rules tables, you could almost get away with it. It's almost true. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you again next time on the Two Half Squads. But remember to roll low. And rally well. But not when you're playing us. Not when you're playing me, for sure. Yes, definitely. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. And clink and drink, would you?